postmodern and post-Christian are both terms that the, the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God is. A world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out. An alternative way to live is to live by... It's almost like raising up white flag and saying, Ah! It's all the secular people's fault and no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic campaign. How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about. Adventism Redesigned. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's Pastor Marcus here, and I want to welcome you back to another episode of the Story Church Podcast. So stoked to have you guys with me this week, because this week I'm doing something special. Uh, This week, I'm going to be sharing a conversation that I had with a friend of mine who is a church planter uh, by the name of Melanie Reyes. Uh, Melanie lives uh, in the east side of Australia, in New South Wales, and she is part of a team of young people, not pastors, um, none of them are are, are full-time ministry, just a team of young people who love Jesus, who love the kingdom, and who are planting a church. Um, And that's just absolutely amazing. Melanie is the second person I spoke to last week. Uh, who is part of a team just like that. Uh, a few days earlier, I'd spoken to a young man who's also not a pastor. He, he's just begun uh, actually studying for ministry. And he's part of a team between 19 and 25 who are planting a church uh, also in the East Coast of Australia. And it's just super, super exciting. And so look, if you're a young person and you're listening to this today and you have a passion for the kingdom and you've been thinking about church planning, I want to dedicate this episode to you, uh, this conversation that Mel and I had, and uh, I want to invite you to um, think about what we say and, uh, yeah, to really take that calling to heart and that passion. And and don't just put it to the side while you go pursue other things. If God is calling you to plan a church, I'm telling you, uh, you got to do it. You got to do it, man. <laughs> so the, the, the amazing thing about it as well in this conversation that I have with Mel and with others is it's just amazing to see young people who, you know, they're not in full-time ministry, they're not clergy, they're not pastors, but they just have this passion for the kingdom. And and I just really want to empower that and celebrate that here today because I believe that the kingdom of God is is built and is nurtured through people like that, all right? It's not about pastors, it's not about trained professionals, not knocking that, you know, we talk about that a little bit in the episode, definitely not knocking that. That's an important part of the the conversation, an important element um, of the journey, but... Man, when you've got these young people with this passion who are saying, hey, we want to plant meaningful spaces, that is something that I just want to celebrate here today. And I want to encourage you, if you're thinking about it, if you've felt a calling to be involved in that, get out there and get the conversation going with you know, some friends, with uh, your local leaders, and, and just immerse yourself in that space and, and start taking some steps forward because we really really needed. Now, the main thing that we focused on in our conversation was what does it look like uh, to plant relevant churches in these, this sort of post-church milieu that we live in? Um, the post-modernism and the post, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? There's so many posts, aren't there? We live in a post-everything world, basically. Uh, so post-modernism, I was thinking of um, post-secularism as well, metamodernism, all of these different isms and ideologies that are sort of colliding and collating um, into uh, an alternative way of of navigating and dancing with the angst of the age, right? There used to be a time where the way in which you related to and interacted with those anxieties was faith and religion. 
but no more. People are finding other meaningful existential approaches to those questions. And so how do we then as the church with this message, with the gospel, with the kingdom, how do we create meaningful spaces that are designed to disciple this culture to be followers of Jesus. So that's kind of the, the main focus of our conversation. Although we bounce around, we talk about a few things and I hope it's, um, I hope it's insightful for you. So, uh, yeah, look, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and uh, transfer over to our, my conversation with Mel and I'll catch you on the other side. If you could narrow down the heartbeat of why you guys have come together and said, let's plant a church. What, what is, what is the, the, the core of your passion with, with, with this project? I think the core of it is, is just, sometimes we, we see a lot of churches that, um, and even church plants, that when they plant, the people that come and join are Adventists from other churches mm. that, hey, this location is a bit more convenient for us. Let's mm. join this church. Mm -hmm. So kind of like a church plant that's like actually going to be catered for people that are unchurched and and haven't met that or felt like they have that space to be able to to enter into. Yes, yes. <laughs> Being like intentional with this isn't a church for, and not saying no, Adventists aren't allowed, but yeah. really creating it a church that's going to be catered towards the unchurched. That's right. Like, yes. And that, that means changing everything. Mm -hmm. Like the language we speak mm -hmm. in our church, the way that we do, and we're still looking to keep um, traditional things in our church because I think it's beautiful as well. Mm. But also, you know, everything changes. Evangelism. Yeah. Um, the way that we connect with others, the way that we approach these people, like it's going to change. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's like, no. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I don't know. There's so many parallels with what you're saying and the, like with your guys' church plant um, in the Gold Coast and also what we've got going on here in Perth with the church plant in Coburn. Um, Cause we're also looking at potentially launch in February, March. <laughs> uh, so that's pretty cool. We were supposed to launch November, but you know, hashtag COVID, there goes that. Yeah, so, but yeah. we're, we're looking forward to uh, probably, you know, February, March, now that we are starting to gather up again. And yeah. we have the same exact core heartbeat. It's like, yeah, mostly, most of our churches are designed for religious people. They're designed to meet and placate the sensibilities of the already religious. And the problem with that is that it's, it's just basic. It's, it's basic. Uh, I don't know if psychology is the right word here. It's getting late. But if it's not the right word, forgive me. But I think you'll get my point. Like, Whenever you include, you by default exclude. That's the reality. And so like, if you decide we're going to create a church that is geared to include the religious, you by default exclude people who don't, who don't find meaning in those structures and categories. 
And so the conversation that we've had to have, and I, I, can, I, I heard your trepidation there, which we felt it too, is like, look, we're not saying religious folk are not allowed. <laughs> but we recognize that by designing a church community that is purposefully including the misfit, we will by default exclude the religious, you know? Yeah, um, we, we recognize that we recognize that. And it's not like we, we is, you know, like we're not sitting on a high horse, like we don't want you people, but it's just, we want to be really intentional. We, we don't want secular people who to show up accidentally. We're really intentional. Like we want this to be a space for the misfits, for the ones who don't yeah. get your church, for the ones who don't fit in, for the ones who come and they try and they give it the best shot and they just don't yeah. fit in. This is for them, you know? Um, so yeah, we're, we're on very similar journeys, man. It's, it's awesome. And that's what I keep coming back to. And that's what kind of drew me to like reaching out to you because I felt like even when I first found out about your church plant, I said to myself, man, if I was doing WA, I would have just gone, yeah, Pastor Mark, just sign me up. We would have signed you up, dude, right away. (laughs) I I feel there's such a need, especially now Adventist churches. Like I, the amount of churches that I've been a part of, that like you said, are all like structured the exact same way. Any anything like what we're doing, we've already like I can feel that it's going to be like controversial hmm. to to for our church. You know, mm-hmm. I feel like they're going to look at it and go, why are you trying why are you being so radical hmm. and and changing the way that, you know, and but like you said, the moment that we do this and we we are building a church for people that are unchurched misfits, the outsiders. Mm. We're like essentially not catering to mm-hmm. that I used to what an Adventist church. That's right. So, yeah. And I want to encourage you in that, man. I want to encourage you in that because it's like, it's so needed. And I've been wanting to do this for a while, but I'll tell you a quick story. I've been wanting to do this for a while. Really, when I, the very, moment I decided, Candice and I decided to move back to Perth, we already had on our hearts that we wanted to plant a church here. Um, but of course, you know, it took some time and I've been pastoring um, uh, some of the other established churches that have been here for some time. And it was last year where I really was just really moved because I had four secular people that were attending one of my churches none of them related four random secular people who walked in off the street and it was awesome and we we did it we went on a journey with them we were studying the bible together um and then one of them disappeared didn't see him again and i couldn't get in touch with him and then the other one messaged me a few months later um, um, uh, I just wanted to let you know I'm not going to be coming back. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm looking into. Uh, he was, uh, he had a history in uh, secular, secular Buddhism, um, and so he was kind of thinking of going back down that route. So I met up with him and I was like, Hey, can you tell me why you've decided to um, to go down the route uh, or, or re-pursue your secular Buddhist ideals and you know, um, and and not continue your journey with the church? And his answer basically boiled down to, I don't fit in. Like he had, not once did he say the people were judgmental. Not, one did he, not once did he say they were unfriendly, because they're not. Not once did he say your church services are boring, because they're not. Um, and that was a huge moment for me, because we usually hear, oh, people stop coming to church because people are mean. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, they do. But 
that's not the only reason, you know, and, and that's when it hit me. Like you could be the friendliest, most interesting church in town. If your church is not purposefully geared to speak meaningfully to the categories that secular people are contending with, they won't fit in. And that's what happened to him. And so, and then another two, the same exact thing. I was, I sat down with them as well. Why aren't you coming back? Each of them lasted about three months before they finally decided lovely people, lovely message, great memories, but I got to move on. I got to, I got to keep my, keep doing my journey somewhere else. And one of them, I told him, uh, when he was getting ready, he was a, he was a recovering drug addict. And I told him, um, look, honestly, I'm planting a church. Uh, which will probably launch in the next couple of years, and it's designed this way. And when I explained it to him, like his eyes just widened, and he was like, "Bro, sign me up! I want to be on your team." Like he was so excited. The guy hadn't even been baptized yet, you know. <laughs> he was just so excited because he recognized, like, "Yes, this makes sense." You know, like I can get into this. So, anyways, long story, but I just want to commend you guys and. You know, there will be definitely criticism and, and all of those challenges that go with it. But I mean, yeah, I like what Winston Churchill said. If you have enemies, it's because you stood up for something at some point in your life. So go for it. <laughs> that's so good. And I'm so happy to hear from WA that that's happening. I don't know if it's the first of its kind. As in, I don't know if there's other church plants that are aiming to do what you guys are doing, but... Mm. For me, yes. I know it sounds like personally the first. Yeah. Well, there's there's another church plant going on right now as well. Um, Derek McCutcheon is leading out. So I'm really oh, excited nice. about that as well because they have a very, very similar vision. I, I would honestly say identical vision. Um, so I'm pretty stoked. And yeah, just, you know, praying for Derek and um, can't wait to see how, how his project materializes as well. So yeah, good things. You know, the, king, the kingdom is moving, man. The kingdom is moving. So. <laughs> so, well, I just want to, so in our time of um, meeting together with our core team, we've decided that week in and week out, so every weekend we come together during COVID, we've been on Zoom. Now we're coming back and we're just kind of going to cafes in Newcastle, um, giving to the community, but at the same time meeting together. There's this cafe owner um, in the heart of the city who's just like, friends with Pastor Eddie. Yes, Eddie Hippolyte. And, yeah, and he's just opened his... <laughs> I love that guy. <laughs> opened his, like, top floor of his cafe just for us to meet. Wow. And so it's been a crazy blessing. Not not mm. Adventist, nothing like that, but he's just, like, sees value in what we're doing. Like yes, this. love it. So we've been coming there every weekend and, and we've been just going through the Book of Mark mm. and... um just really trying to like gain understanding of what Jesus's life was like on earth. Mm. And if anything, that's kind of like the, the blueprint of, of how we kind of want to mirror um, the way we behave, the way we um, welcome and disciple mm. and everything. Yeah. So um, I've been given chapter 15. Yep. And so in reading it, there's a few things that kind of stood out to me. But the main thing and the the title I guess I sent you is kind of what it means to be a church that carries the cross. Mm. And so just for my team, I'm going to summarize what I learned in Mark 15. And there's this cool thing that I found where someone said, someone wrote about the book of Mark, where it goes, I like to look into the writer, so Mark, mm -hmm. 
his writing of the book and and of the gospel and it's true what they said where they go the life of Jesus in this book that he wrote is kind of um the extended introduction Mm. and we have the death of Jesus and that's where we see the passion narrative is how he describes it um so saying that everything the miracles everything leading up to the death is just kind of like introducing that big that big moment I love it. And and it's so cool because it, it says that Mark went out of his way to write the book, went out of his way to like depict Jesus as a very mysterious character mm. and almost lonely. Mm. And there's so many moments even before his death, especially where he's left alone or abandoned. Mm. And um, just reading today, like at the very end in Mark 15, where he says, where he cries out to God and says, God, why have you abandoned me? Mm. Um, and the main thing that I took away is, is he's trying to really highlight what it takes or what it means to be the Messiah for mm. Jesus. Um, and it wasn't about miracles and it wasn't about, and it even mentioned like the fact that he put in um, a miracle of Jesus that Jesus had to do twice Mm. in the book of Mark, he had to redo or that some you know miracles didn't fall through so he's kind of highlighting the fact that it wasn't about miracles and back in that day there were a lot of people that did miracles you know maybe not christian but still um so that wasn't his like identity and neither was even within his disciples um they weren't even aware of his identity completely and so they're saying like what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah was to actually die mm. and to follow that through. And I was listening to what you and Pastor Eddie were talking about, about this idea of atonement. And so, and atonement being, so I looked at the definition, human beings being re- reconciled to God through Christ's sacrificial suffering and death. And so in summary, we see in Mark 15, Jesus' trial before Pilate, where they mock him and they shout, crucify him. Then you have the soldiers who mock Jesus. They dress him up in purple robes. Um, Then you have the actual crucifixion, and that's where we see Simon carrying Jesus' cross, and they label him king of the Jews. And then you have the the death of Jesus, and that's when he calls out, God, why have you abandoned me? Um, And that's in that moment we see that Roman officer say, um, this man truly was the son of God. And then at the very end, we have the burial of Jesus. So I guess what I want to start off by asking you is in kind of in line to what you were saying with the whole notion of atonement being re- reconciled to God, why do you think there's like this need or this pull as humans to have that complete forgiveness? Why is it so important to us to seek that? And whether you know God or not, like having that, this this thing I heard where living with guilt and remorse is the most painful existence to live. And so it's like whether you know God or not, I feel as though humans chase that almost to live this, you know, when they find that fulfilment, it's to be free and to, to feel like you're, you know, you ask anyone and to know that no one is, um, accusing you of anything to know that you're not attached to any shame or guilt is is a good feeling to have. You feel light, and so I guess 
why is that complete forgiveness so important to us and something that we seek? That's an awesome question. Wow, that's a massive, massive question. I love it. I love it. Um, <clears throat> I want to answer it. I want to. I want to expand the the definition of atonement just a little bit as well because I think it interplays with with your question there too. Um, and uh, when we think of a, atonement, there's this. You know, uh, the, the way I, I often describe it to people is you think of the word atone, and if you split it into, you know, into these two syllables, you know, you have at one. Um, so to atone is to put things back together as one. You know, it's the at oneness with God. Um, and so atonement is essentially uh, restoring the oneness that we were originally designed for with God. And that involves forgiveness, reconciliation, you know, the, the, the letting go of, the, of the, the, the baggage that we bring to that connection, right? The, the things that separate us from him. And there's a sense in which in the death of Jesus, that's like the ultimate moment, the catalyst, and where you look at that and you're like, wow, this is how far God is willing to go to say that he forgives me, right? Like this is, this, it's revealed right here. It's not just God communicating philosophical ideas, but he's in history and he's bleeding and he's, you know, <laughs> abandoned and forsaken and unjustly tried and nailed to this cross. And in, as, he's, as he's on that cross, he's communicating to humanity his desire to be at one with us, despite all of our brokenness, despite all of our injustice and, and all the terrible things we've done individually and collectively, God is declaring, I, I want to be with you, right? And, and there's just something beautiful and overwhelming there. And what I love about atonement is that it, from, from this cross-centric theme that we find there in the Gospels, it then launches into this promise that God is not simply forgiving uh, our, our wrongs, but that he he's restoring the whole universe back to one right like he's bringing the whole thing back and and so this then brings us into the conversations of you know uh things like social justice and injustice and humanitarian suffering and you know all of these different things that are at play in a world that's been plagued by sin and been and, and has been really um corrupted by sin and it's like, hey, here's atonement that God's actually restoring everything back to oneness, nature and our relationship with him and our relationships with one another, right? And our societies and our interpersonal tensions, like everything is being restored back to harmony with this rhythm of love. And, and so when you look at the world around you, you see this and you pointed this out so well, like you see this reflected as much in the secular world as you see it in the religious world. And so, for example, um, just last year, uh, or maybe it was two years ago, my ability to tell the passage of time isn't that great. Sometimes I say last year and it was like five years ago, but forgive me. <laughs> I'm pretty sure this wasn't five years ago though. It might've been a year and a half, but um, you know, the big movement, the big social movement that was going on was uh, Greta Thunberg, right? And the, the environmental protests um, the, the environmental justice protests that were taking place. And essentially the narrative that is at play there is that the earth is, the earth is being um, destroyed 
by by human injustice right by we're basically raping the earth of its resources and and we're not going to be able to live we're not going to be able to survive in another 50 years time the earth's going to be unlivable and so what we need to do is we need to change direction so that the earth can be redeemed essentially restored and and our our generations right that our 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 uh, children and their children and their grandchildren that can live on this world so really even though it doesn't have necessarily a religious understructure the whole environmental reform movement is a movement of redemption right they're seeking to they're seeking to secure the future of the human race um, and so you have Greta Thunberg on the one side pushing for that, but then you have um, Elon Musk on the other side saying, actually, no, we have to colonize Mars, right? <laughs> because the only hope that the human species has is if we, may, if we terraform this planet and make it this, this new world. And there was this whole thing going on about getting a crew of people up there and they were going to make this whole uh, reality TV show about these people moving up to Mars and you know, uh, starting a colony there and, and, and a new a new humanity there. I don't know if Elon Musk had anything to do with that, but um, I remember watching some interviews about uh, with some of the guys that were potentially going to go. And one of them said, you know, we've stuffed it up so bad here on Earth. I just want to be a part of starting over. That's redemption language, right? That's, that's, that's someone saying, not necessarily in a religious sense, but communicating this deep subconscious ideal that we need to start over. Like we've yeah. messed it up, right? We, we need a new beginning. And, and, and that's essentially what the colonization of Mars is, right? It's the new beginning for the human species in, in a secular sense. And you see it even if you go deeper into like uh, the philosophy with the transhuman movement. The transhuman mm. movement, um, not to be confused with uh, transsexuality, which is a separate conversation. Transhumanism is the idea that we need to transcend our physical selves. And what they mean by this is, you know, we have to look at how we can blend man with machine. Um, or even in the more extreme cases, we have to look at how we can upload our consciousness <laughs> onto some sort of cloud um, and even transfer that consciousness from one, from one universe or dimension to another. And really the ultimate aim here, once again, is giving humanity a shot at transcending itself, at, at surviving, um, at a new beginning. And so you can see this desire for atonement is everywhere, mm. not just in the religious world. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is that what is essentially saying is that the atonement has already been completed and it's Jesus who did it. And it's not us, you know, like we don't have to engineer that on our own. God has already completed that for us. Uh, and that's the beauty of the gospel. It's like, wow, here it is. It's done. It's in Jesus, in Jesus. And wow, we can get into, whew, we can write an encyclopedia. But in Jesus, like, what does Paul said? Jesus has in himself, he has created a new humanity, right? There's Adam, there's the Adam from Genesis. And now there's this new humanity that has been by the second Adam, that's essentially, in a spiritual sense, that's transhumanism, right? There's humanity 1.0 from Adam, and then there's this humanity 2.0 in Christ. Like, that's the transhuman ideal, in a sense. I mean, not exactly, but you can, you can see some parallels. And, and, of course, there's the sense of the earth being recreated and redeemed and restored. That's the Greta Thunberg ideal, right? And, and the fact that in this new universe, 
we we won't be confined to just this world, but that there, there's this immense adventure awaiting us in God's creation. And that's the Elon Musk narrative. Like they're all found in Jesus. So anyways, I could go on and on, but yeah, I hope that makes sense. I love, I love that you said that. I love that you said that it, it's something that has already happened, mm. even though we are in search for this. And as I said to you, we, but also people that don't want anything to do with God, like you said, in mm. other ways that search for reconciliation, that search for a new beginning is always there yeah. just in human in general. And Absolutely. that leads me to a question that one of our team members actually wanted to ask for you. They had read one of your, your I, I shared a few links with them. They read one <laughs> of your, your interviews and they said, um, let me find it. Oh, that you previously, you previously saw salvation as what Jesus has done for you plus your works. Mm-hmm. So what Jesus has done, you know, him saving us or that salvation, that, that, that action of him dying on the cross, finding that reconciliation. How can we build a culture and understanding um, church or just a place that is far from this? So, mm. it's, so we rebuild this understanding that it's not about what he's done plus our works, but it's just yeah. trusting what's been, yeah. 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 That's awesome. That's a great question. Um, the, the, the tragedy is that self-redemption is the religion of the human heart. Now I'm editing or up, up, uh, not, not upgrading. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, paraphrasing. That's the word I'm looking for. I'm paraphrasing a statement of Ellen White, where she says, Romanism is the religion of the human heart. She's referring to the, the sort of medieval Catholic, you know, self-penance and beating yourself and crawling on your knees for forgiveness and things like that. Um, and what she's saying is like, look, don't look at, don't look at Romanism and say, ha, ah, that's their problem. Like, this is, this is us. This is a human issue. This is not a religious issue. Humanity collectively aims to redeem itself, right? It aims for self-redemption. And you've probably met people in your life, right? Like you can sense the frustration when you, you meet people that are going through really big difficulties and they're, they're making really big mistakes. And, and you know you can help them, but they're like really stubborn and they just don't want any help and they just want to fix it themselves. And they keep digging the hole deeper and you're standing there like, please, just let me help. And they just won't, you know? <laughs> I think that's how God sometimes feels with us. Like self-redemption is the religion of the human heart. So the, 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 the reality of that is that your denominational label will never protect you from that, right? Like your denominational identity, because ideas don't, don't reach the walls of your church and think, oh, there's a wall I can't get in, right? Like ideas transcend physical barriers. So they will sneak in and, <laughs> and find their home in, in your ideology, no matter what your brand is. And the only thing that can really keep us, the only thing that can really keep us centered in, in what true redemption is, is to be centered in Jesus, right? Like, that's it. We have to be centered in Jesus. And we can talk a little bit more about this because there's a practical side to this, right? But let me at least start with this concept that because this self-redemptive narrative, and we see it in the culture, right? Like all of these narratives that I talked about, the Greta Thunberg narrative, the, you know, the Elon Musk narrative, the transhuman narrative, um, you know, all of these narratives are, are narratives of self-redemption. 
Um, I was just actually just talking with some friends today about um, about Satanism uh, because uh, one of our colleagues had a question about Satanism. And the interesting thing when you look at, at Satanism um, and really most pagan ideologies, although most pagans wouldn't claim Satanists as part of their crowd, but anyways, beside the, that's beside the point. Um, when, when you look within the ideology, what you find is, you know, a lot of Christians think, oh, Satanism, like they just run around worshiping the devil. Like they don't actually believe Satan exists, right? Like that's not what Satanists don't actually believe Satan exists. They, what they believe is that Satan is a metaphor for human autonomy, right? For, for, for human freedom. And what they, what their religion is really about, if, 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 if you want to call it a religion is the protest of tyranny and, and coercion and oppression. And so they believe that every human, you know, ought to be free. And the, the thing with this, the, 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 the subtle deception within this ideology is that when you read, even if you read the Satanist manifesto, like it's all really nice, you know, compassion and justice and, you know, all these things. Um, and it reminds me of something I heard a preacher say a long time ago. Um, he said, when Satan rebelled in heaven, he didn't rebel with the intention of being evil. Like he wasn't running around telling all the angels, hey guys, let's go be evil. Let's, let's go anarchy and bloodshed and, you know, uh, let's, let's just destroy the whole universe. Like that wasn't his, his, his line because in many ways, Satan didn't have, he, he wouldn't have had a, a uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, the word slips my mind now. Um, he wouldn't have been able to categorize evil because it didn't exist, right? Like, so it's not like he was like running around telling people, let's, let's go be evil and destroy the universe. But, but rather, he, his, his message was, we can be good. We don't need God, yeah. right? Like we can do this thing on our own, you know? So, so let's abdicate ourselves from him, right? Let's, let's liberate ourselves from him and we can engineer our own society and we can engineer our own government. Like we're angels, we're, we're intelligent, you know, we're brilliant sentient beings. Like we don't need God to, to be good. And, and you see this manif manifested in, in not just Satanism, but really all human religions are based on the same idea that we can atone, right? That we can restore, that we can redeem, that we can manifest ultimate beauty and goodness independent of God. Mm. And that's everywhere. You don't even have to be religious. You know, you could be an atheist. And, and, and that's essentially the idea, right? Like we can manufacture something independent of, of God. And so that's a long-winded way of saying that it's not just a religious problem. It's not just the Adventist, you know, conservative problem. <laughs> it's not a Catholic problem. It's a human problem. And Christ, right? Christ at the center engineering a church where the central focus is what Christ has accomplished for us and and repeating that theme and celebrating that theme right we celebrate that theme in communion and we celebrate that theme in our in our messages in the way we structure ourselves like making that theme the central tenet of our faith like Paul said mm -hmm. I, I desire to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified right this thing is the center that's the only antidote to this human impulse for self-redemption, right? It's to recognize that actually it's all accomplished in Jesus and to celebrate that, put that thing on blast, like 24-7, <laughs> you know? I, I, so that's, I, I, I suppose I would say that'd be like my, 
kind of like if we're gonna get into that like to scratch the surface and open it up i'd say yeah that would be that would be the way i'd, I'd phrase it yeah a human problem i like that mm. another question was also from another team member he wanted to ask what are some key principles you mentioned that there were some practical ways mm. um i guess that's kind of what he's asking what are some key principles or practical ways to live um that will keep us present keep us carrying our cross and by that i mean like i feel like sometimes as churches we create a space where people can't feel like they can openly come with their burdens with things that are ugly um to god or to jesus to find that redemption to find that moment to to reconcile with him so how can we make sure that we are becoming a place what kind of strategies or principles could we have that our carrying of our cross is a full expression to mm. our cities mm. to, to people around us yeah look i'd start by saying that this is um there isn't a static answer to this question in the sense that here's a formula you know a plus b equals c it's a dynamic thing and, and what I mean by that is that the experience of having a Christ-centered community of faith um, where we, we are experiencing his grace as central to our identity, that experience is something you constantly have to nurture and, and mold. Uh, I don't think that there's a formula that you can put in place that will secure that for, you know, until Jesus comes. It's, it's a constant conversation. It's a constant... Um, it's like a relationship, right? It's like a, like a marriage relationship. Like there's no formula that is like, hey, you do this, you'll be married for a hundred years. Like it's a constant yeah. ebb and flow. And as you go yeah. through life and as you face different challenges and different circumstances, you have to come back to the basics and, and revisit and recommit and reframe. And, you know, so I, I, I'd start out by saying that. I think that there's, we have to recognize the dynamic nature of spirituality. Like it's not a static thing. And with that, look at some basic principles, but then always be willing to revisit and recommit and, and, and redesign that experience for, for new challenges, new chapters in life. Um, but the basic bottom line, I would say, is, you know, when, and, and this is where we get into the practicals, is it's easy to talk about, hey, you know, like, keep Jesus in the center. And, and, but then the question is, like, what do we mean by that? You know, like, I remember when I was in, you know, uh, uh, in my younger years, early 20s, and, um you know, people would say things like, hey, you know, just focus on Jesus. Just keep your, you, you know, just keep your eyes on Jesus and, you know, you'll be right. And I used to sit there and be like, what does that mean? Like, do I print a picture of Jesus, put it on the wall and just stare at it to keep my eyes on him? Like, <laughs> you know, like what, what does this keep your eyes on Jesus thing mean? And, and of course, it was when I realized that keeping your eyes on Jesus, you know, uh, first of all, it's not speaking physically of the eyes, right? It's a spiritual eye. Right. It's 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 being in connection with him, in relationship with him and staying in sync with him through that relationship every day that you begin to experience little by little, you know, the ebb and flow of his presence and this transformative power. And I think it's the same in a local community. Um, it's it's looking at ways in which we look at our church and we say, how can we design a church? How can we engineer a church where a relationship with Jesus is the thing that's nurtured the most. Yeah. And that's what's missing in a lot of our churches because most of our churches are focused on creating programs. Mm. And when you focus on creating programs, 
the program becomes the priority. Programs become priority over people. And when programs become priority over people, the, the tragedy of programs, at least in, 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 in conservative circles, is that they bring with them these, this list of um, ascetic ideals, right? It's like, oh, we have a, like, for example, uh, this is a conversation we had at our church plant recently, right? Um, you have a program and in your program, you've got people who stand at the front and you've got people who sit in the pews. And the people who stand at the front are psychologically assumed to be uh, a little bit more sacred than the people who sit in the pews. And so if someone stands at the front, um, there's gonna be someone in your church who's like, does that person really belong up there? You know, like, uh, and I've had that at board meetings where it's like, hey, someone came and led worship for us last week and I don't know who that person was and, and I don't know what their life is like, you know. Uh, we have to be careful who we put up there, you know, all these things. And, and one of the conversations we had at our church plant was, what if church, what if the early church did that, right? Like, what if the early church, because they met in homes and they're meeting in homes and they're talking with each other and they're sharing with each other and they're celebrating God together and sharing their stories and singing songs together. And, and they're just going around the circle, right? Just sharing and having this brilliant, you know, time worshiping God. And then they get to like, you know, the guy in the room who's like maybe you know, new, and he's got some problems with, with drugs, and, and they're just there to nurture him and journey with him, and he decides to share, you know, like, in this living room setting, oh, I want to share what God's done for me this last week, and I want to share this song with you guys, and I want to do this prayer, and then the group is like, no, not you, you know, like, you're not qualified to stand before us and share, like, you can sense already in an intimate environment that would make no sense, but you take that intimate environment and you transform it into a program, into a performance. And all of a sudden it's like the people up front have to be a certain quality, <laughs> you know? And because we, 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 we kind of assume a level of uh, sacredness or something with the people up front and then the people in yeah. the pews observe this, right? And so this is one example of how we kill people's spiritual development because when we're focused on programs we, we can't then focus on people. And so my thing would be like, and this is something we're working through as a church plant, is like, how do we engineer a, and the word engineer is kind of not my favorite because it sounds very static, but um, it's the best word I can think of right now. But, <laughs> you know, like how do we engineer a, 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 a system or a community, a way of being among us where people are the priority, yeah. Where, where, where relationship is the core, where what we, what we are doing is developing discipleship pathways where mm -hmm. anyone at any stage of life they're in can come in and begin this journey with God and grow with this relationship as the center of their entire experience, relationship with him, relationship with one another, right? And I, I believe that this approach is the approach that is going to give people meaning and yeah. and make church not a program that you attend but really an experience that you belong to if if that makes sense yeah yeah and we've been looking at that as, as well saying that if we um are trying to convince people to, if we sorry if we attract people with the program mm. then it's going to be our duty to then keep them with the program that's right you yeah know? each program at that level mm. so that they stay yeah um rather than keeping them with just the presence of, mm. of god that's right and if that is 
what ends up keeping them there or what brings them there in the first place mm. and keeps them there, then that's the only way that they're going to really see it through, I think. Absolutely. Rather than following a program yeah. or trying to make everything look aesthetically good or make it something to buy into in that way. Yeah then you're just going to have to keep on. And that's exhausting. Yeah, you got to up the ante. And, and, and you're right. I'm glad you mentioned this because this plagues contemporary churches as much as traditional ones. Um, yeah. And uh, I love contemporary churches because I'm a t- contemporary guy. Um, but one of the challenges I found with contemporary churches is they're basically traditional churches with a makeover. Yeah. Right. They have cooler music and a better, you know, more modern dress style. And their stages are a bit less creepy uh, because they're you know contemporary but when you look beneath the cosmetics when you look beneath it to the heartbeat and the structure of the church it's identical to a traditional church it's program centric it's performance centric there's a spectator culture that's encouraged or or nurtured um you still have the same 80 20 principle where like 80 percent of people just show up for the show and then go home um and 20 percent are doing everything all the time like it's it's essentially the same and so what I often encourage people, and this is the journey that we're going through as well, is, um, and, and this is a conversation I've had with a lot, of, a lot of my colleagues, is don't assume that you recreate church by just changing the cosmetics. Because I've met so many people like that. Oh, man, I want more young people in my church. Let's get some round tables and some festoon lights and a cool band. It's like, no, no. They might show up the first night, maybe even the second <laughs> But eventually they're going to figure out it's the same old thing with a makeover. Like you have to redesign the substrate, right? You, you have to re-engineer this thing. Um, and so for me, I think the number one thing, which you guys are doing, which is brilliant, is identify your heartbeat. Like why you exist as a church. You'd be surprised how many churches I've been to that have no idea why they exist. Um, and the reason that I know is because one of the first things I ever do when I get to a church is I visit all the leaders and I ask every single one of them, one-on-one, in their own homes, with a little notepad and a pencil, why does this church exist? And they all give me a different answer. <laughs> it's like, you don't know why this church exists. I love the ones who like look you in the eye and like, I don't know. Like, I'm like, okay, I'm going to keep you real close. You're, you're honest. <laughs> but most yeah, people just, you know. Yeah. Um, but most people just have no idea. And it's like, if you don't know why you exist, everything else is moot, you know? Because then what happens to your system as a church, your elders team, your, your board meeting, your business meeting, your, your ministry teams? Why are they there? If you don't know why you exist, what guides them? And what ends up guiding them is what ends up guiding most churches, most ministry teams, and most, um, you know, uh, structures is self-preservation because they don't have a mission. They don't have a why. So then they just exist to preserve themselves. And that's where churches begin to devolve into these ridiculous arguments about carpets and ties and drums and, you know, because there's no mission. And it's like, it's all about preserving what we have oriented to this point. And, and that's, you know, at that point, the church is like on the verge of death, you know? Um, but anyways, let me pause there because I talk a lot. I recognize that. So. <laughs> no, I love that. And I, and, I, and I see that. I see what you're saying about, like, as a team, you all got to be in tune with, with I guess, how. And, and that's what we've been saying. We want to we, we define what the kingdom of God is. Mm-hmm. We want to define what the gospel is and all be on the exact same page. Mm-hmm. We, and that's why we're all journeying through Mark 
to yeah. really nail down on, like you said, if we're all on the same page, we all know the same direction, same definition of what is cool and to us, mm-hmm. then it means that we're all going to be running on, you know, yeah, on that same same engine, same part. So that's that's like what this whole study is like, finding out, like you said, what's going to be our our focus, yeah. what's going to be what's driving behind. Because you know, it's true when you when you have people that come in that don't know all the, all of these things and perhaps haven't experienced God before, don't know what what Jesus is about. Um, you've got to be prepared to to be very simple in the way that that you say things and be prepared that when they do ask you, what does this mean? What is the point of all of this that, that you hold hmm. important to you or, you know, to be prepared to, to quite simply just say, yeah, this is what we are about and this is what we believe and this is kind of, kind of how we see yeah. Yeah, our, our vision or our mission. Yeah. But I think that's so cool. And I think at the end, to kind of close off, our discussion the thing that i keep coming back to um you know with this whole idea of of mark 15 like you said that idea of atonement why it's something that we always chase mm. as humans to find that um i want to come back to obviously this idea of like this passion narrative that that mark presents in the gospel about just I love this word, um, these words, love ethic put together, Mm. that sometimes we like to kind of beautify, you know, Jesus died on the cross, how amazing is that, pay for our sins and everything. But then also realising that, hey, if you're going to go out there and carry the cross, you've also got to be prepared to to suffer for it at, at the same time. So like this love ethic that, yes, following Jesus is so beautiful and I I also want this to be a part of our church I think that it's not not something we are going to convince people about Mm. like hey you follow Jesus your life is going to be so good or your life is going to be like this but also come to a place that to realize that this is actually really sacred what you're Mm. what you're about to be a part of yeah it's it's going to cause you to have to sacrifice but I think that's what people invest in mm. something that they have to sacrifice for Absolutely. as well because it's scary and you give it so much to it and I think that's key mm. as well yep. to understand um so I kind of want to end off with the idea like how do we also present this idea of you know to be a part of something like this, yes, you're going to find so much beauty in it, but at the same time, carrying the cross is going to come with a cost, mm. whether it's like Jesus being mocked at, um, being separated and being abandoned. Um, like you said at the moment, and someone had asked, we're facing tragedies in our society with, with the whole COVID happening, the whole Black Lives Matter protests, and we're coming to this realisation that, all of these structures that we've kind of built are slowly falling apart. We're seeing the world, but it really is, and it's ugly. Mm. And I, I liked what you mentioned about, you know, sometimes as a church we follow trends mm. and we're too scared to step, above, like, 
step forward before the trend occurs Mm. and be up there and carry the cross wholeheartedly and say, we stand by this, you know, and I think that's Jesus in in Mark or in the gospel. He goes before Mm -hmm. without anyone having to put it begin trending something he's always the one that's at the front of the line mm. taking hits and, and everything so how can we mirror that as well it's yeah. so hard to do that sometimes because mm. you want to be a church that yes everyone wants to be a part of but at the same time you don't want to beautify it mm. and and make it so ideal mm-hmm. that we're missing out on hey this is actually also going to cost you a lot yeah, yeah. That's a really good question, man. Um, what you're what you're talking about there is the the um, romanticization of of scripture's narrative, and you know that's we see that a lot in 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 modern Christianity where we we aim to romanticize it to the degree that um, it loses its meaning, it loses its existential significance, and sometimes I think people want to romanticize the gospel because they've been exposed to a very cynical faith. You know, so I'm thinking, for example, myself, you know, I was raised in Adventist and I was raised in Adventist in a Latino church. All right. Like that's, you know, when I got here to Perth and I got my assignment and churches and I had people telling me, oh, man, those churches are conservative, bro. You're going to have a hard time there. And I went there and I was like, man, you guys do not know what conservative is. In, in Perth, man, like, <laughs> like the most conservative church I've been to in Perth is a liberal by comparison to the Latin church that I grew up yeah. in. Um, yeah. So, you know, when you grow up with that cynical, repressive, fundamentalist faith structure, there's a part of you that just, you know, if you're going to keep your faith in God, you almost have to delete anything that's not anything that's not pretty because you're so used to only the ugly, right? The, the sermons on beasts and the conspiracies and, you know, the, mm. just the rules. And it's just like, you're just so over it. All you want to do is talk about love, you know? Um, <laughs> the tragedy with that is you end up romanticizing the narrative yeah. of scripture and deleting its uncomfortable element. And, um, you know, in my experience, what happened was, you know, I, I went through that journey and I think, you know, people, if you have to go through that journey, go through it. You know, I went through the journey where I had to romanticize the gospel just to, just to, just to finally get an appreciation for the beauty of the gospel. Um, but when I actually started interacting with secular people, postmoderns, metamodern, you know, secular sort of, you know, um, critical theorists and you know with their crazy questions and (laughs) you know and and i I started journeying with these people and talking with them and having bible studies and they started asking me these questions that were incredibly um intense i realized like jesus loves you ain't gonna get me nowhere like these people have questions that are so profound existential questions that 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 cross you know, that rub shoulders with, with social and humanitarian injustice that is laid at the foot of Christian history, right? Questions about um, sexism and racism that is, that is embedded deeply in the history of, of evangelical faith, right? Um, questions that, you know, rub shoulders with the mistreatment 
of the LGBT community and, and minorities and, you know, all of these different things. And I'm like, you know, my romanticized Jesus loves me. That's all that matters. Oh man, that's, I, I got nothing to say to these people. Like I can't answer their questions. I can't interact with the categories that they're dealing with. And, and so I realized like, I need to go back to scripture and allow the uncomfortable bits of it to reintroduce themselves, obviously through the lens of Christ, because you know you don't want to end up back in that cynical, toxic <laughs> religion. Um, but there's a sense in which you have to embrace that full narrative. And like one of my favorite, if if not the favorite book of mine in Scripture, now is the Book of Daniel, because the Book of Daniel interacts with the with the injustice of empire, right? And, and, and that speaks volumes to things like the Black Lives Matter movement and, and Occupy Wall Street and all these things, you know, the, the injustice of empire. The, that's why they're called beasts, right? Because they operate according to the beastly impulse of self-preservation. Like, it's like, oh, that's why they're, you know, and, and, and it just kind of begins to come to life. But I totally agree with you because when you look at the most massive movements that have taken place, in, in, particularly in Western history, I'm thinking modern Western history, you know, you think back to the civil rights movement. Who led that? It was young people and they were being run down by dogs and, and pepper sprayed and beaten and thrown in prison and they kept showing up, you know, and you look at Occupy Wall Street, who led that? It was young people who camped for weeks in freezing cold weather, you know, in Manhattan of all places, you know, <laughs> and I, it wasn't the only one, but, you know, and, and BLM, like who's leading that? You know, it's young people. And whether you agree or disagree with all of the little bits and pieces that come with that, what you can't deny is the fact that young people have tethered to themselves to something that's meaningful to them, despite the overwhelming risk and the price that they have to pay to make this, to get this message out there. And we as a church have historically, I think, tried to make it too easy. It's like, oh, look, if you make it easy and you make it fun and you just make it entertaining, entertaining, then young people are going to love it. And it's like, ah, oh, they might at first because, you know, anything's better than repressive, coercive, <laughs> you know, religion. But eventually when they get to those existential moments where they're making their big decisions in life, your, your entertaining church ain't going to be a part of it because they need something meaningful, you know, and, and you don't, you don't do anything meaningful in this world without paying the cost. You can't love without paying a price. You can't make a difference without sacrificing something. Um, and so I fully agree with you. I think, you know, we need to keep that holistic idea, that holistic narrative of scripture and, and the narrative of scripture, uh, if, if I can simplify it, 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 particularly the prophetic narrative, it balances two points. The promise, which is this promise, this beauty, this, this enthusiasm, and this protest, right? And the protest has a dark side to it, right? It's, 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 a, it's a protest of injustice. And what happens when the prophets show up and they proclaim this promise and this protest? Well, all you have to do is read their stories, right? What happened to Isaiah? He got sawn in half. What happened to Jeremiah? He got beaten and exiled. What happened to Zechariah? He got murdered in the temple. What happened to John the Baptist? He got beheaded, right? What happened to Jesus, right? And I'll close with this because John Eldridge said it brilliantly in one of his books. I can't remember which one it was, but he said Jesus wasn't crucified because he was boring. He was crucified because he was unsafe. Right? He wasn't just running around telling people a romantic story. He, his very presence was a threat to the establishment. 
And I think that it's time that we engineered churches that were that occupied that space of promise and protest, right? Where our message is enthusiastic and it's centered on the beauty of redemption and the love of God, right? We don't want to be centered on conspiracies and beasts and all that stuff. We want to be centered in Jesus. But at the same time, through that lens, we want to have a message that protests the injustice of the world that we occupy right now. And that is going to bring us into opposition and that is going to bring us into tension. But if you don't have that, you don't have meaning, you know? So yeah, I hope that helps a bit. That does, so good. And I love that, that last point. I think that to create meaning, to create that purpose, you can't just, like you said, paint a picture, romanticize it all. That sacrifice is surprisingly something that, that, shows you it's something worth investing in because like you said love yes love is beautiful but love is scary at the same time Mm -hmm. hard can be ugly it means you're going to have to give something up as well and i think that's that's like the very essence of like you said what jesus did every person that was so faithful um to his calling Mm. didn't always have a happy ending yeah and yeah Yeah, i think it's powerful I think that's what I loved about the movie. It's an old movie now, but Passion of the Christ. Um, And I heard a lot of people complaining. Oh, you know, he didn't have to show. It didn't have to be so violent. It didn't have to be so, you know, all this stuff. And, you know, people downplaying. Oh, the physical sufferings weren't what was important anyways, you know, and all these things. But it's like, well, what Gibson brilliantly did, in my opinion anyways, was he he de-romanticized the cross. And he took, he despiritualized it as well. Yeah, there was definitely a spiritual element to it, but you can spiritualize it to the degree that you forget that true spirituality, true faith, true biblical, true biblical Hebraic faith manifests itself in flesh and bone. And true love, right? God's love manifests itself most fully, not in Bible promises. It manifests itself most fully in the mangled body of his son, right? Beaten beyond recognition and just shredded, you know, with whips. Like that is, that is love. That's biblical love, right? That relentless other-centered love that is willing to, to lay itself down and there's no limit to, to how far it's willing to go, right? For each and every one of us. And so there's a materiality um, to, to the sacrifice of Jesus that we cannot ignore. And that materiality is his body, right? The incarnation. And, and our churches, I believe, we need, to, we need to do that. Like we, we've created churches that are romanticized in the sense like we're safe. They're safe churches. We can hide behind these walls. Our bodies are never in danger, right? We, we don't have to rub shoulders with the un- discomfort that Jesus had to endure. We can hide behind these walls. We can teach our classes with our PowerPoint. And that's about as far as mission goes. But it's like, no, Jesus incarnated, right? He was there and he, and he suffered our sufferings. And it's like, we're his hands and feet. We're his body. And, and, and I'm not saying that we should run around with uh, martyrdom syndrome, you know, <laughs> do not do that. That's just awkward. You ever met people like that? Like they have that like martyr syndrome. It's just not cool. But, you know, all I'm saying is let's aim to to be incarnate and and in that conversation to embrace the fact that incarnation, there's an element of it that is beautiful 
and there's an element of it that's painful. Well, there you have it, guys. That is, uh, we, we pretty much um, ended shortly after that. Just did some um, small talk after that. But uh, I hope that that was a blessing for you and, and something that you can walk away with, something insightful, something meaningful for your own journey uh, and for your own adventure as a church planter, kingdom builder. I want to take a moment before I wrap up to thank uh, a few people. Number one, the patrons who have been so amazing in supporting the Story Church podcast uh, or the Story Church project as a whole. Uh, those of you who have been so cool as to um, purchase the eBooks that I've got on on site as well. Thank you so much because you know it's it, it means a lot to me when someone gets these eBooks because it's like you know. It's, it's a big ask, you know, it's like, who is this, who is this guy? Why should I get his ebook, you know? <laughs> so when you do, it's, it's very meaningful for me. I really appreciate you. Um, it's a vote of confidence, I guess. Uh, but really, ultimately, man, uh, it's, it's, it's really just about celebrating Jesus and communicating our identity as Adventists as being something overwhelmingly meaningful in the modern age. And I, and I hope you guys are capturing that through the books and um, the podcast and different things. So thank you again. Um, I really appreciate you guys. And um, yeah, I'm going to wrap it up there. Take care. God bless. Have an awesome week. Mm-hmm.